Welcome to Science Share Soundwaves. My name is Vivian Yuan and I'm the Chief Author of Science Shares, and I'll be your host for today. Um, the composition and structure of nascent planets um, are largely dependent on their forming disks, which host a rich organic, organic chem chemistry. Numerous research have been undertaken um, to investigate the chemical composition of these disks to assess their um, embedded um, exoplanet's hospitalities to life. In this podcast episode, we are incredibly honoured to have our guest speaker, um, Karen Oberg, um, a professor of astronomy at Harvard University. Her research focuses on stars and planet formation, organic compounds to protoplanetary disks, um, and origins of life on Earth and other extraterrestrial planets. Um, in April 2015, her research group discovered the first complex organic molecules in a protoplanetary disk. Moreover, Professor Oberg is an adherent of the Catholic Church while pursuing her scientific career. She's also particularly passionate about encouraging and inspiring Catholic students to pursue the sciences while serving on the board of the Society of Catholic Scientists. Today, Professor Overt will be talking about her research regarding the astrochemistry of nascent planets and its impact on planet formation. At the end of this talk, we'll be exploring the compatibility between her faith and her work as a scientist. Thank you for joining me in our conversations today and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Vivian, for that introduction. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you. So, Professor Ober, I have been particularly fascinated by how your group Relentless Research has brought to light the first complex chemical compound detected in the protoplanetary disk. Can you please talk about those complex molecules and how they confirm potential biosignatures outside the Earth? You know, it's, it's a great question. So to answer it, I do want to take just one step back and say mm -hmm. a couple of more words about these disks and why they are interesting to explore mm -hmm. in general. So when a star like our sun forms, it forms with a disk of dust and gas around it. And this is where planets assemble. Mm. So when we are studying these disks, we're studying material that's currently flowing onto planets or being accreted onto planets. So it's really the planet building material that we're looking at. And if you want to understand uh, what kind of composition a young planet is going to have, including its hospitality to future life, uh, then you really want to understand the organic composition of the material that goes into these planets. So that's the context for why we are looking for these organic molecules uh, in, in these disks. Uh, now, as so a few years ago, we have an amazing new telescope uh, at ALMA, uh, which is in Chile, uh, which allows us to look for these molecules uh, in the disks. Uh, so that's the background when now about half, half a decade ago, um, we uh, used ALMA to, to look at a couple of these disks in detail. Uh, and we were actually looking for some other molecules. So this was a serendipitous uh, discovery uh, when we realized that there were some features in the spectra that we were getting, um, which were not the ones we were looking for, but were actually due to this more complex organic uh, methyl cyanide. Uh, a molecule that maybe your listeners have heard about before is hydrogen cyanide. This is like the bigger cousin uh, of, of methyl cyanide. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, now, this, um, the discovery that we have this complex organic chemistry where planets are forming or where exoplanets are forming, uh, that suggests that a lot of planets, maybe most planets, uh, form in these organic soups uh, that have things like water and cyanides uh, in them, which is quite similar to what we think our own solar system uh, assembled in. So it does suggest that there might be a lot of planets out there that have the basic building blocks of life available to them from birth. So, so it doesn't really tell us about, since these planets are still in the making, uh, they don't have life on them currently, but this does tell us something about their sort of likelihood uh, of having life in the future. And, and I think that's looking, um, or at least the basic ingredients for that are looking like they're widespread. And if that's all that's needed, then life should be widespread as well. That's awesome. Um, so you've mentioned something about the ALMA telescope. What is it? What is it, is it special about it that can detect the chemical compounds? That like yeah, that's a, it's a it's a great question. So Alma is uh, a telescope that operates at microwaves, uh, microwave. Wow. So these are the same kind of waves uh, that you use in a microwave oven to heat up your your tea or whatever it is that you're cooking. And the way, um, the reason the microwave oven uh, works is that microwaves get molecules to rotate or sort of jiggle around. And that's a way to heat up your, your food. Uh, but the way that we use them is that uh, every single molecule has a specific kind of spin or rotation pattern, which results in a specific set of spectral feature at this micro uh, wavelengths. So when we are uh, taking in, uh, looking at the microwavelength spectra towards one of these disks using ALMA, uh, we can uh, we, we see uh, spectral features that we can identify with specific molecules. So the first reason that ALMA is awesome uh, is that it's operating at this microwavelengths, which is where we can take the spectra of these molecules. Mm -hmm. But the second uh, reason is that ALMA is a so-called interferometer. What this mm. means uh, is that instead of having one big uh, telescope, you have lots of sort of mid-sized telescopes that you can put at an arbitrary distance from one another. And then the largest distance uh, that you put between your, your telescopes, and in ALMA's case, it's about a little bit more than 10 kilometers, um, that's, that gives you the highest resolution uh, so in general, a bigger telescope allows you to zoom in on smaller things on the sky. But in the case of ALMA, it's not the size of the telescope, but how far away from one another you place them that allow you to really zoom in. Uh, so those things together allow us not just to detect the molecules, in this case, methyl cyanide, mm -hmm. but also pinpoint where in the disk uh, these molecules are. Oh, okay. So we can start saying something like if your planet is forming close to the star, what kind of chemistry has it available to it? If it's forming further away, what kind of chemistry? And that, that's, um, that's a new capability that's really exciting also to me. Yeah, that, that, um, the techniques involve um, interferometry is very powerful, isn't it? Because I think it was the one who did uh, that detect M87 black hole. 
That's absolutely right. So this this is analogous uh, to the very famous discovery of the massive black hole uh, that yeah. you're, you're talking mm-hmm. about. And they actually used ALMA as one of their data gathering points oh, also okay. for, uh, for that discovery. Oh, wow. That's ingenious. <laughs> so I think you have answered the next question, which is um, um, your group laboratory um, experiments and techniques observation that involved. So can you elaborate a little bit more about the techniques that you use in, in the lab? Uh, absolutely. And again, I want to take just one step back to, to motivate why we do this. Mm-hmm. So as an astronomer or astrochemist, but as an astronomer more generally, what we do is that we gather in information from, uh, from space. Uh, but all we can do is sort of receive what nature is giving uh, to us. And that is typically snapshots. Uh, so if we think about the case of this protoplanetary disks, so these disks, um, they are there, they evolved for sort of a few million years, which on cosmic timescales is pretty short, but for a human life is pretty long. So you're not gonna be able to see the chemistry changing over time on a human timescale in these mm-hmm. disks. So if you want to predict how the chemistry evolves or changes and uh, how molecules become incorporated into planets and so on, you need to model that, you need to make a model. Mm. But models that include molecules, uh, it's very rare, probably never, that you can derive those from first principles, like the loss of quantum mechanics or anything mm. like that. Instead, you need to have laboratory experiments that provide some sort of hard data on how molecules can form and how they are destroyed in these kind of environments. So that's where the second big part of my research comes in, which is building experiments uh, that allow us to simulate the kind of environments that molecules experience in these disks mm-hmm. and, and therefore uh, get data on uh, what are the most likely processes to destroy a molecule like methyl cyanide that's sitting in a disk. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe more excitingly, uh, what, how can it form in these rather strange environments compared to what we're used to uh, here on Earth. So those are kind of experiments we try to do. Mm, wow, that's an awesome experiment. <laughs> so yeah, that was such an insightful and discerning research that I've heard from you. Um, so I'm curious if there, if there were any difficulties or mistakes that arose during your experiment and how your group managed to overcome those uh, um, challenges? Uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful question, and uh, I, this is not really a difficulty, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I want to again highlight something we already talked about uh, mm-hmm. while I'm thinking about where we ever had actually a real sort of uh, impressive difficulty that we overcame, <laughs> uh, w- which is that even the way we discovered this methyl cyanide molecule was kind of a mistake. Um, I mean, we were looking for other things. And I think uh, one of the, the ways that you do end up discovering sort of unexpected things is to, uh, it's not to look blindly, you, you want to plan, you want to be looking for something, uh, but if you don't see what you expect to see, to keep an eye out for other things. And that was what we were doing. And that's why we ended up seeing this sense of unexpected mm-hmm. uh, signal. I think in the lab, in some sense, the most, the most common setback, and it's definitely been one that we've been experiencing in the past 
year or so is that you have you have a great idea for the experiment that you want to run uh you start plan designing your experiments mm -hmm. and just as you're ready to go something like the pump of the of the experiment breaks oh. or you discover a leak somewhere so during my mm -hmm. phd i spent a full year just screwing in screws and unscrewing screws trying to figure out where my experiment was leaking and I, I think those kind of setback, setbacks are in some sense expected. Everyone who does experimental science will probably have a year of their life when they're doing nothing but looking for why isn't the experiment working <laughs> the way it was supposed to be designed. Yeah. Um, I definitely had it. I had blisters everywhere. It was horrible. Oh. Uh, but there is there's rarely any, like if you knew how to fix it, um you wouldn't be doing it for a year i mean most yeah. of the time patience or systematic work combined with taking breaks and trying to think sort of creatively what mm. what could be wrong that i have uh have not seen uh so far uh so I, so i haven't uh so beyond sort of patience hard work and trying to bring in other people from the research group to see what you can't see. I don't think there's any sort of magic pill that solves it. It's just, I think the most important thing to know is mm -hmm. that you will have years like that as mm -hmm. a scientist. And that's gonna be hard. Yeah. Uh, sometimes a little bit despairing, <laughs> uh, but they will pass and the sort of joy and excitement of the discoveries that you will also have, I think will more than offset those sort of hard uh, and mm. kind of despairing times. That kind of make me worry to pursue a career in science. <laughs> um, so was, was there any other evidence that supported the, the presence of complex organic molecules like um, comet record or something like that? So there are two, two different things. One is that since that initial discovery, uh, we have uh, now seen it in many other disks. So we know it was just mm. not the fluke in one source, but it's showing up in many other places where exoplanets are currently assembling. Mm. Uh, but part of why this was exciting uh, is that we also see exactly the same molecules in the remnants of our own disk. So the solar system also formed out of one of these disks. Uh, the, the only parts of that disk that's left in sort of original uh, condition uh, are comets. Uh, so comets are a bit like ice boxes where you don't have a lot of sort of chemical transformations happening over billions of years. So we think the composition of comets is actually quite similar to what it was 4.7 billion years ago. Right. And when we look uh, at comets, uh, we see a lot, th there's water, of course, I think mm -hmm. that's what most people know, that they have a lot of water ice, uh, but they also have a lot of organic molecules in them. Oh, and okay. among those are things like hydrogen cyanide and methyl cyanide, mm -hmm. so the same kind of organic molecules that we see in these disks. Right. So... Let's take a step back now. In your research, some aspects largely involve chemical knowledge, while others um, comprise physical sciences. So how, how did you reconcile the two domains of physics and chemistry in your investigation? 
Yeah, it was not really by choice as much as uh, recognizes where my talents were and where they weren't, and also <laughs> recognize where my interests were and where they weren't. So when I was starting college, uh, my plan was to double major in chemistry and physics. Mm-hmm. Um, with the, the sort of vague idea I had was, well, I'm good at chemistry. I knew that much. That was the science that I had the most natural talent mm-hmm. for. But I thought that the questions that I was really interested in at the time were really in physics uh, and astrophysics mm-hmm. or astronomy. So I was going to try to somehow do it both. Mm-hmm. By the time that the second year in college hit, it became clear that that was not going to work out. And that I was going to have to choose between focusing on the physics astronomy side that I thought was really interesting, but I wasn't as good at, uh, and the chemistry side, which I was much, uh, much better at. And I ended up uh, making the pragmatic choice of focusing on chemistry. Which was sort of a heartbreaking choice to make because I really, <laughs> so my, my heart yeah. was, was in the astronomy side of things. <laughs> um, but within a few months of that, uh, I ended up having the opportunity to do a small research project that involved uh, looking at methane, so a chemical, uh, around a young massive star, so astronomy. <laughs> yeah. And once I realized that there was a way to use my chemistry talents to answer the kind of questions that I thought was fascinating, um, it was just pretty obvious to me that that was going to be my career, if at all possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there, astrochemistry is a real field, subfield within astronomy. It's, oh, okay. it's not very large, but it does exist. <laughs> so this was a, my... Uh, and like my door or like gate into, into that subfield, just the realization mm. that it existed. And once I said, once I found it existed, it seemed like the obvious choice to pursue given the intersection of my interests uh, and my talents. Right. And it's been a great, great journey ever since. Yeah. <laughs> what, are your, what are some of your um, favorite findings and implications in this research? So currently what I'm the most excited about, uh, um, actually I'm gonna try to choose. Okay, a couple of things (laughs) I'm excited about. (laughs) Uh, One of them uh, is that we're still figuring out what Alma can do Mm. in in terms not of just uh, identifying molecules, but really making chemical images where we can pinpoint sort of exactly where, where molecules are. And I think mm-hmm. there's been a lot of really beautiful discoveries in that sort of space in the past mm-hmm. couple of years based on combining our ability to identify molecules spectroscopically, but then also uh, pinpoint where, uh, where exactly in space or in these disks that those mm-hmm. molecules are. Uh, so I'm finding that that is something uh, that are still, now we're seeing, where the molecules are, we're also not trying yeah. to figure out why they are where they are. So, so that, that's something that's sort of ongoing, but that I'm excited about. Um, I think one of the early things um, that, that I was not directly involved in, but I was happening so in the vicinity mm-hmm. to, uh, to my work, 
uh, is about a decade ago uh, when people using experiments uh, figured out how water forms in space. Uh, water yeah. is one of the most abundant molecules in space. Yeah. Uh, and I think now we know why and how it's forming based on yeah. laboratory experiments. So that's one I, I find really, <laughs> really neat. Uh, I think maybe th those are two of the things that are currently on my mind, but I think mm. where, where I will be spending time and where I'm hoping there will be discoveries in the next couple of years yeah. is really trying to uh, combine uh, data that we have from the solar system, uh, mm -hmm. where there's still a lot to discover um, mm -hmm. on things like what the moons in the outer solar system are made out of, comets, oh, asteroids, yes. and so on, and try to con connect that to what we're now learning uh, about the planet forming disks uh, around other, other stars. So that, that mm -hmm. I think is uh, it's going to be a big part where, where I'm, that I'm going to be thinking about in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's interesting. It has been particularly um, fascinating to um, to understand the the chemistry of protoplanetary disks uh, and compositions, as well as the physics of NASA's planets, um, and how your group's achievement bring hopes for the discovery of life beyond Earth. Uh, more surprisingly, with the fact that you're a Catholic adherent while pursuing your PhD. So can you tell us how you, how you found your past um, to the Catholic Church? Uh, yeah. Uh, so the, the, again, a little bit of background is that I was a scientist before I was a Christian or a Catholic. Oh, right. Uh, so I already had... Um, had that background sort of settled uh, by the time I started considering the Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, as a first year in graduate school, so this is already after I've completed my undergraduate degree, mm -hmm. I had a conversion experience that brought me from uh, some respectable agnostic position uh, into the uh, sort of pan-Christian uh, kind of faith. Yeah. And uh, then at the end of graduate school, uh, starting during my first postdoc, I, I began to seriously explore the Catholic Church and ended up converting uh, into the Catholic Church um, right before I started my first faculty positions in my late uh, late 20s. And I would say it was a combination of uh, intellectual inquiry. Uh, I think I've been obsessive about trying to understand the word and <laughs> go wherever truth uh, leads me. And uh, I found um, in Christianity and in the Catholic Church in particular, yeah. I found a more compelling uh, understanding wow. of the word that seemed to fit the data better than anything I had thought about uh, myself. So mm -hmm. part of it was this intellectual uh, journey. Um, there, for those of, of, of the listeners who are curious themselves, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity and oh. the Chesterton's Orthodoxy were two books that were important uh, mm. for me in that regard. Right. Uh, but then it was also, there was also a big spiritual and emotional component, which had to do uh, of me um, noticing my own reaction and my own sort of peace in entering into a Catholic church and sitting in on things like the Catholic mass, uh, which confirmed what I had or the journey that I was already on uh, intellectually. So it's a, it's right. a combination. Yeah. 
So I've heard that you have been spreading your passions for science to children in the Catholic Church, which is phenomenal. <laughs> Can you tell us how you encourage Catholic students to study the sciences? Uh, absolutely. So, so one of the things uh, that I feel passionately about is that uh, religious faith should not be an mm. obstacle uh, to being yeah. a successful and excited uh, scientist. Mm -hmm. And I think there is sometimes um, some concern that sort of a dive into the sciences can be a threat uh, towards your faith, your relationship yeah. with God. Okay. Uh, sometimes it's just comes from the inside. Sometimes it comes from the media. Sometimes it's something unfortunately taught by other teachers or, or other religious mm -hmm. leaders. It might be a bit suspicious uh, towards the scientific project. Now, I would say it's not all their fault. Uh, a mm -hmm. big part of that comes from some rather militant atheist scientists who have been proclaiming that you have to choose between science and religion. Yeah. Uh, so I feel I said passionate, passionately about countering that narrative, uh, both mm -hmm. by being quite public about how uh, I'm living, what I think is a truthful life, both as a as a Catholic and as a scientist, mm -hmm. but also in sitting down with students, either one on one or in groups or even in larger settings, and just mm -hmm. going through some some common obstacles that people have encountered or some common sort of ideas of how uh, science and religion uh, should be sort of conflicted with one another and mm -hmm. trying to take those apart and think, think <laughs> them through together. Yeah. And uh, I would say most of the arguments that are given of why there should be a conflict are not very powerful when you sit down and think about them in detail. So I find this to be very rewarding uh, work. To yeah, do. definitely. Have you ever had a situation where your scientific works um, are being challenged by re religious beliefs? And how, how do you feel or uh, deal about those conflicts? Unfortunately, this is going to be a boring answer that I have never uh, okay. experienced any conflict myself. Oh. And uh, in part, this might have been, as I said, I was a scientist before uh, yeah. I became uh, a Christian. So I think when I entered Christianity, it was already with a rather deep understanding of how science works. Mm -hmm. uh, and also with just an assumption that you take that scientific knowledge with you into your faith. Mm -hmm. uh, so if there is a reading, for example, in the Bible, uh, which if you took it literalistically would be counter to your scientific understanding, it never occurred to me to read it in a literalistic mm -hmm. way. I mean, Genesis 1 is a good example, which where you can uh, yeah. have different readings of it. So I think from the beginning, I was just never tempted by that. And it was only when I started encountering either people being curious on how I could combine the two or mm. students who were struggling with it that I started learning uh, what were the conflicts uh, that people were having and what were some good ways to, right. to talk about them. Yeah, that's awesome. You and your group studies um, on the organic molecules in determining the origins of life and the chemical habit habitability of exoplanets are absolutely admirable. <laughs> um, returning to your scientific, scientific works, um, do you have any ideas in mind regarding the, the experiments that your group might execute in the future to extend this research? 
I think uh, a big question that we have uh, is how the chemistry that we have in these discs, so what we're mm -hmm. observing, how that, um, how exactly that affects planetary environments and sort of the first steps of planetary chemistry towards an origins of life. I think we have some qualitative intuition uh, that if a planet is forming um, with a lot of organic molecules being accreted on, onto it, that is a good thing that gives you a lot of nice starting material to get the complex organic planetary chemistry going. Mm -hmm. um, but what we don't, we don't know that quantitatively how it happened, how many of those molecules actually survive or just become destroyed as a part of the planetary formation process. Uh, and also the, the early chemistry that you actually have on the surfaces of these planets uh, under different conditions uh, is fairly unknown. So those are sort of mm. two things that I'm very interested uh, in sort of really connecting wow the kind of observation, astronomical observations uh, that we are yeah. doing, and then planetary science and origins of life on planets on the other hand. That's awesome. Um, if you, that's awesome. Thank you so much for um, attending this um, conversation and sharing your knowledge with us today. Um, if you would like to ask us questions about today's podcast or would like to offer your expertise, um, and join us as a guest speaker. Um, please email us at the link in the description box. Thank you for supporting our new podcast and we hope you have enjoyed um, listening to today's session. Stay safe and see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.